Now, it's traditional, or, or most of the time, it's not always the case, but most of the time, the person that we ask, that, or ask to be the recipient of our Emerson Award um, offers the message that day as well. <laughs> I, I'm going to read what Lois has written about herself. So we're, we're going to hear Lois's story, but if, if you will pretend that it's coming from her mouth, rather than mine. Um, may I read the preface also? Okay. As you know, after Susan B. told me that I was to be the recipient of All Souls Emerson Award and that the recipient gave the talk that day, I immediately and likely loudly said, No! <laughs> Later, when you asked that I at least say something about what brought me to the place where improving the racial climate became a passion for me, I told you that I wouldn't commit to talking about that as I was prone at times to be very nervous in front of a group of people and never knew when this might happen. Therefore, I decided to write something about how I reached a point where I initiated action. I grew up in Wisconsin and lived in communities ranging from a village of 100 people to a city of 40,000. There were not any African Americans who lived in those places. There were no discussions at home about blacks as they didn't affect the lives of my parents. Therefore, my formative impressions, feelings, and beliefs were fostered by other sources. Books by Mark Twain, such as Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and Uncle Tom's Cabin were a part of what I read. Born in 1931, there was no TV until maybe my late teens. Thus, in terms of actual people, I saw some blacks in movies who in those days were mostly servants. In person, I saw the Harlem Globetrotters, and an aunt took me to see Louis Armstrong. That experience forever more influenced my taste in music. I knew of Joe Lewis and some other black entertainers, so overall, the blacks who affected my consciousness had no negative connotations. After high school, I went to a church-affiliated college in Ohio my first two years. There I experienced my first incident of racism when a student's parents, who were from Kentucky, requested that their daughter be moved to a different dorm as there was a female black student in our small residence. After two years there, I transferred to the University of Wisconsin, where I have no recall of interacting with any black students. After college, I moved to San Antonio, where I had my first, my second exposure to a, a racial incident. I was in front office cashier at the Menger Hotel, Menger, Menger, and one day, when a black chauffeur came into the lobby to find his passenger, Mr. Grigsby, the room clerk, using the N-word, told him to get back to the garage where he belonged. I lashed out at Mr. Grigsby about his actions. 
Also, while there, I went to a dance at the Lackland Air Force Base Officers Club with the pilot I was dating. Sitting at our table was a black doctor, and I, who had never asked any man to dance before, asked him to dance. The next morning, I told Mr. Grigsby, I'll have you know that I danced with a black man last night. <laughs> the same Mr. Grigsby, who was so nice to me, and when my family came to visit, drove us around as I had no car. In his own way, I think he tolerated me. Then I went back to Wisconsin, where I lived in Milwaukee for 10 years. There I worked at a hotel and later a bank, and during that time, again, I had no day-to-day -day contact with blacks either at work or where I lived. An exception was that all of the visiting baseball teams stayed at the hotel where I worked when they came to play the Braves. This was in the 50s, and there were a number of blacks on the teams. I interacted with some of them at work, and two of them asked me out. Then I learned that I didn't have it in me to go out with them, though I was attracted to one of them. When I think of this now, I try to be understanding with my younger self because my behavior was contrary to the integration that I supported. I do understand my actions when I consider that I had, at that point, never had a personal relationship with a black person, male or female. Ongoing, I did have reactions to the news, which by the, that time included TV. I was very proud of then-President Eisenhower when he sent federal troops, or maybe the National Guard, to protect black students when they enrolled in previously all-white schools. Later in the 60s, when I saw how blacks were treated by both the police and some Southern citizens as they became active to peacefully force integration, I thought of Southerners as terrible people. I'm from the South. <laughs> but also occurring was my involvement with a man from Shreveport who had come to Wisconsin to start an insurance company uh, with business associates. He at times would make racial remarks, which I always challenged. But this same man was an otherwise good person, and the reason I moved to Shreveport in 1965. 65. There were still whites-only signs in many places, so I was having up-close and personal experiences with segregation. In 1970, I moved to the Villa del Lago, which at the time had two black residents, a teacher and a lawyer. 39 years later, when I moved away, white flight had taken place as out of 210 apartments, there were only three apartments occupied by whites, including me, and none of us were from the South. During these years, as I for the first time had the opportunity to have black, uh, blacks as neighbors, I formed some close uh, friendships. 
Also in 1987, I started to work at the VA Medical Center and had many black co-workers. These experiences made race relations a personal thing for me, and after I tired of tutoring at the Lighthouse After School program for a number of years, no, and after I retired, <laughs> I tutored at the Lighthouse After School program for a number of years. Very different. <laughs> Um, I had a need and passion to address racial problems. I was active with a group called Faith and Community for Racial Unity, and I started a teen interactional program which consisted of bringing together teens from black and white churches. A meeting was held at each church, and there was a mix of fun and seriousness. I would consider this program a success based upon the feedback we got from the surveys. But eventually, I dropped doing this as it was a full-time job. Next, I chaired a program for the League of Women Voters titled A Conversation About Race. I attracted 120, it attracted 125 people, and afterwards I thought, big deal, so you had a meeting and then what? About this time, I went to a program sponsored by the state of Black Shreveport, led by Lynn Cawthorn. Talking to then State Representative Patrick Williams about my sense of what now, he said, why don't you call Lynn? We had not met, but I did just that, suggesting that we get together and feel each other out, and he agreed. We had a sort of true confessions session and agreed that we were compatible and that we'd develop a program which we now call To Win, the Together We Win Network. I looked it up and we had our conversation in the spring of 2013. We learned as we went along and changed approaches as seemed appropriate and we were committed to not giving up as at one meeting, Lynn and I were the only attendees. We were meeting at 5.30 p.m. and had problems in increasing our membership. This changed when in December of 2015, we switched to a monthly morning breakfast. Our purpose is to improve the racial climate in this community. We have conversations, social events, and a storytelling program, which happens once or twice a year. Uh, with a growing membership, we're open to trying new things, to collaborating and learning. My focus certainly has evolved to not only addressing personal relationships, but to knowing that addressing institutional racism is essential. I am at a place where my mind understands most prejudice, but my heart doesn't. During serious moments, I remain sad and angry. I think there are a lot of folks here that can relate to those sentiments. Lois is a living example of someone who has been able to focus her time and energy toward an identified and articulated goal. 
There is no way of knowing how many people she has touched and changed by her efforts. We celebrate those efforts today and applaud her for her commitment. Still, everyone here today is aware there is so much still to do. Things are still broken and out of balance. Justice has not yet found its footing in our great land. And these days it would seem that the tools we've been using are not bailing the water out nearly as quickly as it's coming into the boat. I want to point once more to a new model for building the ships we would make to float us all to the shores of justice, equality, compassion, and beloved community. It requires that we continue to ask questions of our own comfortable assumptions over and over and over again. And even if we think, not me, you're included. It demands that we do the uncomfortable work of changing. In the book Dignity that we're reading, all of us, right? <laughs> the author Donna Hicks talks about the different uh, strategies we evolutionarily devised for survival. One being the instincts, this is all in the introduction, one being the instincts that prompt us to either uh, fight or flight, and the other be, being towards connection. Hicks goes through the likely history, you know, real cursorily, um, over how this might have come about, but eventually gets to the place where her underlying theme is, is that we have overdeveloped our instinct and capacity for fight and flight and underdeveloped our instinct and our capacity for self-extension rather than self-protection, for engagement and connection, and that we have to be very intentional about undoing the hard wiring that we have developed to respond those ways. And it takes digging all the way back farther than our memories go to find what set up our triggers and to find ways to more boldly bring the power of not feeling slighted by someone else's words or actions because they're never about us anyway. It's always about whoever's saying it or doing it and where they are in their journey. <clears throat> now is the time. Now is the need. Now is when that shift in strategy is not only wise, but it's the only one that's going to work. the only thing that would seem to be capable 
of closing some of the chasms, however slowly. Although I believe there will be dramatic shifts, I believe that a paradigm is shifting and all we have to do is be open to participate. For us, perhaps more particularly here in America, the division, because we're here, we're aware of the divisions here. They're getting well-defined before us all the time. Doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results is commonly referred to definition of insanity. <clears throat> so you may well have been a good and faithful servant for what you understand justice to be. And I know many of you are. Many of you have made it your livelihoods. Many of you have dedicated your lives but to remain and continue to be servants of what is good and true and just and loving and beautiful and wise, we all need to find our ways to new models of shipbuilding. This is not easy work. This is not comfortable work. This is not something we have done and are finished with. This is not a one-time thing or a one-time awakening, but an unfolding, just like evolution. We are the ones who can penetrate the dense fogs of distortion and distance as we are willing to do that work. It means allowing ourselves to become vulnerable, to each other first. And in the process, grow in our capacity to embody compassion and walk it out in the world. It may not be fun in the beginning, but ah, the rewards. <laughs>